Hi, it's Lynn Galadner, and welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm a writer and entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've learned that we succeed through inspiration from storytelling and deep and mutually beneficial relationships. This show began in 2018 after my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I wanted a way to capture his stories and record his insights. It's grown since then to share stories of how people around the world make meaning from very ordinary pursuits. Now I focus on sharing the stories of writers, authors, and those in the world of publishing to learn how and why we create stories that help us make meaning from the mundane. I'm a former journalist and marketing entrepreneur, and I've been teaching writing for more than two decades. As a writing coach, I help authors build their brands and share their words. If you'd like to write with me, check out my offerings at lynngaladner.com. And you'll find more episodes of this podcast at makemeaning.org, as well as on every podcast platform you can think of. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to the Make Meaning Podcast. Now, on to the show. Amy Maxine Ehrman learned to love stories at the feet of her grandfather, her papa, someone who can make the most mundane stories spring to life. She still considers him her favorite storyteller and credits him with setting her down the path to educator and writer. Amy's first novel, All Falling Things, is forthcoming from Scarsdale Publishing, and her second, Wherever Would I Be, taught her all about the world of self-publishing. Previous short stories and poems have found homes at journals such as Sinister Wisdom, the Copperfield Review, and Glass, a journal of poetry. Amy currently teaches writing at Kishwaukee College and resides in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I'm thrilled to welcome her today to the Make Meaning Podcast. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to meet you. I know we are part of Peaker Writers Together, and I will put that in the show notes so people can find my Peak Challenge and learn all about our cool little community that we're part of. It's great to finally see you and meet you, and I'm thrilled to talk about your writing journey. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So you've said that you can't remember a time when you didn't write, which I love, and I can totally relate to that. So just tell me a little bit about your early memories of writing? So I grew up in a family of storytellers. So I've always been surrounded by story. So when I say writing, I don't necessarily mean writing it down, uh-huh. but just the the creation of stories. So sure. even as a child, just consuming stories, my maternal grandfather is still to this day, he's passed, but mm-hmm. um, has been my favorite storyteller. He could make the most mundane things spring to life. I do credit him for my love of stories, but my dad is also a storyteller, not that he would ever call him. <laughs> <laughs> so stories were always important. I loved to read. Reading was escape for me. It was yeah. a journey in, in finding new places. And so when I did get to the point of you know being able to write, I did start writing stories. I've recently read some of those from my childhood and really <laughs> bad poetry from high school. And it's, it's quite cringeworthy, but you know, we all have to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really cool. So now you write character-driven narratives. Where do you find your idea? Oh, goodness. My first book is kind of a joint effort between my love of Alice in Wonderland. All uh-huh. the characters have a connection to characters in the original story. So cool. But also just life. That story sort of evolved from after a particularly difficult period in my life, the, the realization of how without that difficult period, I wouldn't have some of my most favorite people 
people in my life. They were a result of meeting them during that time or because of that time. Yeah. So that idea of not everything is meant to be permanent. Not everyone is meant to remain in your life. But if you remove that because it's it's a heartache or you regret, then what else might you be removing? So there's usually, when it comes to stories, there's usually a piece of life, something that inspired from life, but also just journeys. My second book has a tie to Scotland. Ah, love it, love it. I've loved Scotland since college. I took a a Scottish literature class with my my favorite professor Mm -hmm. and I just fell in love with the country. And my best friend and I did a road trip. We did 1200 miles driving Ah. around the wrong side of the road. Oh my God. And it just, I mean, it exceeded our expectations, but she has ancestral heritage there. Mm -hmm. So she can track her heritage back to Clan MacLeod and specifically the castle in Dunvegan. Ah. So there we visited and that sort of became the catalyst for part of this story because I I wanted something magical involved and I knew there was going to be a tie and I knew at some point I would be writing something that took place in Scotland. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so those those pieces all just kind of came together. So there's inspiration all around, I, I feel like. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And it's funny because my next novel that I'm in the middle of writing right now, the first draft of it um, partially takes place in Scotland and partially in Michigan where I live. So yeah, it's just this interesting, like I feel this pull and I have no ancestry whatsoever, but it's it's pretty cool. So yeah, that's awesome. And which university, which professor? We like to shout out to great teachers. So I did my undergrad at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay, and mm-hmm. it was Dr. Stephen Hall. Awesome. Um, I don't believe he's still there. I think he's living in Madison now, but he was such a great teacher. And it didn't matter what he was teaching. He just was so excited about it that it was hard to not be excited. In fact, I took history of the English language with ah. him. And it was the first time in university history that the class had a waiting list because people oh enjoyed being in his presence so much because oh. um, he just gets so excited. And he was yeah. Scottish by heritage. He's actually oh. named in the book. Oh, I love <laughs> that. Your favorite uh, professors. I am a teacher as well. So I try to model a lot of that with my own students because I teach um, freshman level composition as one of the courses I teach. And nobody is taking that because they want to, <laughs> because they have to. So yes. if I can let my geeky excitement fly. Hopefully that can encourage them to to find some joy in it too. Totally agree. And and I teach um, on and off as adjunct faculty at University of Detroit Mercy. Same thing. Like I love my students, but they don't really want to be in that class. They just have to be. And I was going to be teaching the part two of it, which is more argumentative writing a couple winters ago when it was still COVID. And it was like, you know, is the class going to fail? Like, and so, and it, it actually didn't. And I, but I had decided I was going to use the first Outlander novel as the text. And then I was going to have them write argumentative papers about different pieces of history and of the storyline. And I was so excited to do this. I developed like such a cool course for it. And then it didn't go. And I'm like, oh, but I got to reread it, you know, just and look like look at it more closely. So that was kind of fun. So yeah, <laughs> hopefully you'll get to use that again. Sometime. Exactly. Well, awesome. So then once you get your ideas, what is your process of building them out into book length works? Like how do you how do you go about it? So it's a process that I've developed and revised as I've been writing. But with my first book, I kind of figured it out where it's really helpful for me to know my characters really well before I start actually writing. So the first thing I'll do is Kay and Wayland has a really great character questionnaire that I mm-hmm. use. She's got it for free online if you Google her. Mm-hmm. And I will fill that out for each of the main characters 
Nice. And I like how specific you have to get with um, some of the details, such as their appearance and things like that. But also that some of the questions will open up little bits and pieces of these people that I don't know if I would have stumbled upon otherwise. And, and those sometimes make their way into the story. Yeah. It's like I tell my students, you should know your character so well that you know their toothpaste brands. It'll never show up in the story, <laughs> but you should know what kind of toothpaste they would be, they would buy. I love that. That's like, I never thought of that. I'm totally going to borrow it. That is super cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then um, the other thing I do is I cast them. I'm a very visual person. So I will find actors or other people and cast them in the roles of these characters so that I have a static picture that I can reference. So okay. if I'm describing a character, I can pull that up and I can see them. Then also when they're in my head, I've got a, a more specific idea. But the goal of all of that is that hopefully it'll break down some of the <laughs> writer's yeah. block that might come up. Because if you know your characters well enough going in, no matter what springs up as you're writing, you sh- you should be able to sort of organically know what they would do in those situations. Yeah, I do write down an outline. I don't mm-hmm. always stick to it. <laughs> if the story goes somewhere, the characters decide they want to go somewhere else. I'm okay with exploring that. Oh, and then then I'll sit down and I'll draft. How long does it take you usually to do a draft? My first book took two years. That is just life and figuring things out. I mean, there would be months where I didn't have time to write. And then I also have a very long commute. So when COVID happened, I wasn't driving as much. And suddenly I had another seven hours in my week to fill. Wow. Wow. Less money on gas so I could buy more books, which was also (laughs) great. So the like the second book took me, I think, three months to draft, but it was still it was short. So there was revision. That was just the first draft. And the third one was two or three months as well. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. So you also write shorter pieces. So tell me a little bit about your writing time. Like, are you mostly now working on books or do you like take breaks between books to write some shorter pieces? How does that go? More recently, um, it's been the books. It's been a little bit since I've done a short story, but with my life and my schedule, sometimes it's just easier to fit in a short story or a poem. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes those it's, you know, there's still drafts involved with that, but it's a little more manageable. And also now that I'm, I've been at my college for 14 years now. So there's some things where I can find a little more balance where maybe I don't need to take as much overload to pay the bills and things like that. So, and I'm more comfortable setting up boundaries. Friday is my writing day. I'm not someone that can do the 15 minutes every day. It takes me 15 minutes just to get into the mindset to write. Yeah. So Friday is my day and I'm, I'm very protective of that. But that's not something that I've had for very long. Yeah. Well, it always evolves and flows based on what yeah. your life is dictating. And, you know, I like to say that I have, you know, three to four hours a, a day, Monday through Friday to write. But do I do that five days a week? Usually not. I mean, I had to take my car to service today. Yesterday, I, I had an early lunch and whatever, you know, so like you grab the writing time when you can, right? Yeah. And I'm such a planner. So like I have everything planned out for the whole semester of when I have to grade and things like that. So I could hopefully protect my Fridays. But then to get back to your, I realized I didn't actually answer your question. <laughs> I've, I've been noticing more and more that the ideas that I've had don't fit into short stories. So I don't know if there's just something in me or in my life that's changed that I'm just more interested in the longer length. But I do have uh, my master's thesis was a collection of short stories and it's been on a dusty shelf for over a decade and I should probably do something with (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I've just, the the ideas that have been coming to me and that I'm excited about just seem 
like they won't quite fit in a short story. Yeah. When you write shorter pieces, do you send them out to like literary journals or magazines or like what do you do with them? I've had a couple that have been published under a pen name, but it's been so long. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, back then I did. And same with poetry. I was sending stuff out more than I have recently. I just, again, I I just seem to have shifted my focus somewhere along the lines that that it's books that I'm more excited about. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about editing Voices of Jams. I know this is something that's taken you around the world. And so can you tell our listeners what it is and how you came to it and that whole thing? Sure. I'm a lifelong learner. I love being a student and I was teaching, I teach at a community college that's about six miles from a university. And I just missed being a student. So I decided to do a couple of graduate certificates just for fun. And one of the classes was a feminist theory class. And I I am a very concrete person. (laughs) It was Uh the worst theory (laughs) class I've ever really taken. And it was a lot. (laughs) But the professor had brought in a bunch of different people to talk about projects that they'd been working on that were feminist in nature. And one day she brought in Teresa Wasanga and Andrew Oceano, who are originally from Kenya, but they teach at the university, which is Northern Illinois University. I don't think I said that. They had this dream of opening a school for girls in their, their home country of Kenya. And when they came in and they talked about it, there was just something about them. They are just very sweet, giving people. And there was something about the school and these girls that they were talking about. I just couldn't get it out of my head. Okay. So I had been talking with uh, a friend of mine about this idea that sprung up. Maybe I could go and teach them memoir and then we could put that into a collection and they could use that to raise money for the scholarship fund. And I had no intention of (laughs) ever telling the professor. And I was sitting in class and and a friend of mine in class told me about her idea. So I shared mine and then she raises her hand and calls the professor over. And the next thing I know, I'm in her office and we're talking about an internship to create this project. And she calls up Teresa. She tells Teresa, they love it. So I was very excited. I had never been out of the country before. Uh-huh. This was my first time. And we went in 2014 and I spent three weeks at the school wow. and was just absolutely blown away by these young women. So in Kenya, school is, is very different in regards to we have essentially free public school through high school. That is not the case there. You pay fees for for most of the schools. So, and it's not compulsory through high school. So you may have students that don't go because they can't afford the fees. And and especially if you have multiple children in the family and you can only afford to send a couple, the boys get priority. Hmm. Even if they do make it to school, then there's Mm -hmm. also issues of, you know, when they're menstruating, if they don't have access to clean water at the school, then they can't go to school. If something happens at home and they need someone to take care of the family, it's the daughters that stay home. And even there was a primary school down the hill from where we were that the teachers would send the girls to the river to get water for the teachers to drink. Wow. So they're, they they pay the fees and they finally get to class and they're still not being educated. Yeah. So their dream was to build a school. It is a boarding school. So it's harder to take the girls out and also yeah. that they would have half of them at least would be on scholarship. Okay. So we went, they are extremely hardworking students. They have a required bedtime lights out because otherwise they would study all yeah. night and then they'd be up at 430 in the morning in the classrooms teaching each other. Wow. Because they understand what an education can really mean for them and for their family and for their community. Yeah. And they were really excited about the project. There was only one girl who asked not to be included. Obviously, we got their permission before we 
their their stories, but they were just so excited about this idea of their stories, their voices could help to educate other young women. And yeah. it was it was incredible. Awesome. That is so great. Is the school still in operation? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, when right. I was there, it was so and they built slowly. They did it really smartly. So when I was when they started, they started with one grade and then the next year they added the freshman class and so on and so forth. So when I was there, it was their fourth year and we got to witness their first graduation. Oh, I just got um, chills. That's so nice. Was, oh my God. It was so lovely. But also they do things differently. Government schools still allow corporal punishment. Oh. It's a very like the the call and response question and answer. Yeah. It's here the students are allowed to question things and they're allowed to explore the things that they want to explore. There's no corporal punishment at all at this school. That was yeah. that was rule number one. And these so at, at the end of their high school, they have a high stakes exam that will dictate whether or not they can go on to university or to college. Okay. And 100% of the girls are testing into, which is unheard of. I mean, nationally, I think the average is 43%. I probably should have looked that up, but it's pretty <laughs> low okay. for, for folks to get into college and university. And these young women, I mean, between you know 95 and 100% of them every year are testing into. So the school is still there. It's doing an amazing job. The the ripple effects are already being seen because now these the that first class one of one of the girls actually went to school to be a teacher and has come back to teach at the school. Oh, I love that. That's yeah, so cool. It's, it's so great. I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. We'll put in the show show notes details about the school and and the project so people can support it if they want. So that's really really cool. Well, I want to pivot a little because I want to hear about your publishing experience. So I know that you've been traditionally published and also self published. So I'd love to hear about those experiences and. And now that you've had both, um, which path you'd like going forward and why? So my first book is with the publisher. It's not out quite yet. I know I went in knowing that publishing was a slow process. I don't think I realized just how slow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There's and there's been some struggles. I've learned it's very important to have an editor who is really a good champion for your book and what the difference that can make for the whole process. Yeah. There's also there's so much that you can't control with traditional publishing, which I again I knew going in and I'm an introvert, so I wanted the traditional publishing cuz the idea of having to market myself is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's been a I mean, overall it's a good experience. It's just I I want to hold it. I want to hold it in my hand. It's you know, yeah. it took 2 years to write and then all the time to revise. It's been about two and a half years since I first signed. Okay. Did you find an agent that found you the publisher or did you go directly to a small press? So I participated in the Diverse Voices Pitch Fest on Twitter. Okay. And cool. that's, that's how I found the publisher or the publisher found me and had asked for the query package and I sent it and then asked for the full and then made the offer. Great. Um, so Congratulations. That's great. <laughs> yeah. It was one of those moments where, I mean, I can't tell you how many writing conferences I've been to and the panels you go to about how to get published. Everyone's like, it was the right place, right time. It's like, I can't follow that. <laughs> it's not a path <laughs> that I can replicate. And then this happened and I was like, well, that's not something I can tell someone how to do. Like, they, yeah. you can participate in it, but it's not a guarantee that they're going to like the pitch. I mean, it's yeah. 280 characters to, oh, to get their attention. Crazy. Um, that whole experience is actually why I decided to self-publish the second book. In addition to um, my writing bestie, my um, my best friend, Jack Welko, has a book out that he self-published. Mm-hmm. And watching him go through that process the joy that he got, it was just really inspiring to see. And so 
it sort of gave me the courage to do it because I'm like, yeah. not, not, not the sense of like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. But like, he did it. He can help me through it. Yeah. Because it is such a learning curve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So much about this process. Because again, there are so many paths to get there, even through self-publishing mm-hmm. and it can be overwhelming. There are a lot of people, unfortunately, that, you know, are out there looking to make money off of you in not so great ways. And so yeah. it's, to try and find the right people to get involved with and and to figure out that process can be scary. But yeah. it was really wonderful because I did get to have control. I don't really have a lot of say over the cover, even potentially the title. Getting to do that with this book was really lovely because the finished product that I'm holding, I can be like, this is all me. This yeah. is exactly how I wanted it to be. Awesome. Yeah. So do you think that's what you'll do going forward? You'll you'll put out your own books after this? I think I might do both. I think it'll depend on the book. I have another YA book that's a, a fantasy that I might do that with, but then I'm also working on a murder mystery. And I feel mm-hmm. like that might be a little bit easier to query, Yeah, which is inspired by my love of detective procedurals. <laughs> so where <laughs> the came from, that's where it came from. Yeah. But I, I would see doing both, both yeah. again. Probably. Okay. So now tell me about the books, the titles, when they're coming out, et cetera, et cetera. So the first one, if it gets to keep its title, <laughs> will be <laughs> All Falling Things, which I've looked on you know, Amazon and everywhere to make sure that no other book had that title. So that yeah. is likely to keep it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure yet when that will be out. We are on our final round of edits, but we don't have a launch date as of yet. Okay. Um, the second book is wait, called- wait, wait, wait. First book, genre, little synopsis. Oh, little, yeah, it's okay. All Falling Things is women's fiction. It mm-hmm. is a dual narrator, and it's a story of two people who are basically trying to find their path in life. Okay. Um, they've both sort of been going through the motions. Um, he's from New York, she's from California, okay. and they both end up in Chicago and happen to meet. Okay. And it's um, going back to before this is the book that has the connections to Alice in Wonderland. So her name is Alice. She ah. is, you know, in the Wonderland of Chicago. Uh-huh. He's the white rabbit character. Ah. And so each of the characters, like she meets a woman there who becomes her her good friend who is the Cheshire cat and likes to ask these really philosophical <laughs> sorts of questions and things like that. But again, it's this notion of finding their path, but also realizing not everything is supposed to be permanent. Uh-huh. And yeah. that just because something ends or doesn't work out doesn't mean that it wasn't worth it or that you didn't gain something from it. Okay, cool. So they both sort of help each other find their paths. So clever. I love it. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. Did I get all the ones that you, all the points? I think you did. Yeah. So, so book two, what's that? So book two is Wherever Would I Be? Okay. And it's the story of a 17-year-old girl named Lucy, also takes place in Chicago. Uh-huh. I'm originally from a suburb of there, for, so okay. for some reason, yeah, <laughs> that's where yeah. a lot of my stories are happening. Uh-huh. But she is adopted at the age of one. She has no memory of her birth, her birth family. Uh-huh. And at this point, so she's 17, and at this point, she has four adopted siblings as well. Okay. okay. And her parents created this sort of family because... The father, Luca, had a rough childhood, but bounced around in foster family and things like that. And then finally landed in a home where this older woman took an interest in him, adopted him, gave him a chance to be a kid. So that's sort of his philosophy. He wanted to pay that forward. He wanted to find children who needed love and support and just a chance to be a kid. So all of these characters, these children 
have stories that aren't necessarily the best lived experiences as children, but they get a chance to be a child in this home. Okay. Lucy, in comparison to her siblings, is the only one who doesn't know her history because she was so young. She wasn't abused. She wasn't neglected like her siblings were. So she kind of walks this balance of, do I want to know? Do I not want to know? Yeah. But also, how do I ask mom and dad about my birth family without them feeling like they weren't enough? So she struggles with that. So cut to, she's on a trip to New York to see her brother in for work and she stumbles upon a see-through man, which she doesn't know at the time, but it's an imprint of an ancestor. And so this sets her on the path because she's able to figure out his name and then the date based on a letter that he's writing. She can't interact with him. He can't hear her. She's just watching a scene play out. But it sends her on the path of discovering what happened to her family and also, of course, having to, in a way, come out to everyone. So to her brother and to her best friend and to her parents that she can see these people. Wow. And she ends up connecting some information and finding out that she does have a living relative that's living in Scotland. So that's ah. the connection to Scotland. <laughs> okay. Her and her best friend and her older brother all go so that she can learn about her history. Um, she does go... I've. I've borrowed my my best friend's yep. ancestry of her Dunvegan Castle and things like that as a way to honor, you know, her. And then she just, she figures out who she is and the fact that she's always been who she is and learning about these other people, this other family that loved her first mm-hmm. doesn't change anything, right? There's, there is nothing she could do to put herself on a different path. This just was her path. Nice. So is that like YA fantasy or what genre would you say for that? So it is, I've been going with new adults, but I know not everyone sees that as, as a age group. So I guess upper YA would probably okay. be the best um, okay. and magic realism okay, is, cool. is what I'm going with. Yeah. And did you say there's a third book too? So I do have a YA that is a fantasy mostly, and there's a little bit of science fiction. And again, it's a dual narrator. There's two two main characters. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit of like a Romeo and Juliet sort of scenario where the one main character, Anthony, is from a line of villains. Uh-huh. But he doesn't want to be a villain. He wants to be good. Okay. And he happens to fall for this boy who is a hero, uh-huh. who comes from a long line of heroes, and whose father just happens to be the man that Antony's father thinks is responsible for the death of his mother. Oh, okay. So there's a there's some clashing that's going on. There's some again the character driven part of it is you know families are complicated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Without magic, even without this notion of like <laughs> killed my wife, I'm I'm gonna get revenge. Yeah. It's also a story about friendship. So each of them have a very close friend that helps them through this path of figuring out you know is this the truth? Did this really happen? And then once, you know, it all comes to light, how that, how that's going to affect the relationship between these two boys. Yeah, cool. Wow. So they all sound amazing. You're just going to have to let me know when they're out so that I can <laughs> pipe you up on social and share and everything. That'd be really cool. Um, yeah, I've started in my monthly newsletter. Um, I also do a Substack weekly, but my monthly newsletter, I do book recommendations. And so I really like to promote friends and colleagues and peers in the writing world and you know, because we all help each other out, which I think is super cool. That's so great. So I have a last question. You did a Kickstarter for your second book, right? To raise funds for the cover art. I did. 
And so I'd love to hear about that. How did it go? What inspired you to launch the campaign? So I've been following this artist, Pascal Campion, Instagram. My writing bestie actually introduced me to the, his work and I just fell in love with his style. And one day he posted a picture and I was like, that's Lucy. That's, that's <laughs> the character. And I just fell in love with the piece and I was daydreaming about like, it would be so great if that could be the cover. And when I decided to do the self-publishing route, I did kind of play around with it and I reached out via Instagram, but he never responded, which I totally get. I'm sure he gets a ton of messages and probably doesn't look at any of them. My writing group, which is actually a group of women through Pika Writers, and then Ah. so wonderful and they're so encouraging. And they were the ones that were like, I bet you could find another way to Uh to ask about this. And so it was through their encouragement that I ended up reaching out through this company that I think represents him to get into contact with him and find out if it would be available to be licensed. And if so, what the fee would be. And she was able to, and she sent back the price. And at first I was like, "Mm, that's (laughs) at least so like deserves the money. But at the same time, I mean, I had already paid for an editor and yeah. it's not a cheap process. Sure. Um, which my editor for this one was Elizabeth Biggie, who I know through the revised resub. Mm-hmm. If anyone listening is not familiar with that community on Twitter, I highly recommend go follow all of the editors because they're all incredible. It's not a cheap thing to self-publish. Yeah. Um, so then another friend of mine was like, you could do a Kickstarter potentially and raise the money. Yeah. And I had no idea that there is a large community on Kickstarter that does this, that that will fund their books through Kickstarter. And another friend of mine was like, yeah, I always find books on there. I'm like, nobody ever told me. Oh, that's so cool. um, I've I've been sneaking around and looking and trying to find ones that I would like to support as well. My goal is half of the fee. For Kickstarter, if you don't reach your goal, you don't get any of the money. Oh. So I was like, I wanted to get a goal that was like manageable because if a couple people did it, I could, you know, fund yeah. the rest of it myself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was blown away by the support. Really? Of folks that I know, like to the point where I had to scramble to come up with stretch goals because they like so quickly surpassed the ones that I had. Ah. And then there are, it turns out to be a really great way to find folks who maybe you wouldn't find otherwise, because there were, a, you know, probably a fifth of the people are people that I don't know. That's amazing. Yeah. That so cool. So it's a really, it's really neat. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. Definitely learned a lot. I love that. <laughs> you know? it, that's like such a sense of community around building a book that, that like restores my faith in humanity. That's so cool. You know, well, before we finish our conversation, I'd love to hear what advice you might offer to writers listening to this episode. I think my biggest piece of advice is always, even if no one around you takes your writing seriously, you are allowed to take it seriously. Yeah. I did grow up with uh, parents that were like, you will be a doctor. I was like, I can't stand the sight of blood. I will not be a doctor. Um, But that notion of like, it has to be stable. It has to be stable. I actually went to college as a business major and it Uh didn't, I didn't make it to Thanksgiving and I was an English major. So I think just you're allowed to take it seriously. Even if nobody else does, you will find your people, you will find your community. I mean, I joined MPC, I think this is my fourth year. Okay. And finding even just finding the Pika writer community and then my yeah. smaller writing group, like you'll find you'll find your people that yeah. will champion you and support you and fall in love with your characters and 
Yeah. You know, having that writing bestie who you can call at a moment notice. Well, we're both introverts, so we text. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, if you're stuck and you're just trying to think through a question, you can send it to this person and, and they talk about your characters and you can talk about their characters as though they're living, breathing people. Yeah. yeah. It's so wonderful. So my advice is, yes, take it seriously. If you want to write, write. You don't have to publish to be a writer if that's right. not your goal. That's right. another piece. And then, yeah, finding your people, finding a, a writing buddy, I think is is invaluable for those reasons. Because, yeah, when you're pulling your hair out because you can't get through this plot point and you can call them up and and they know your characters well enough to know what they would do. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Things, yeah. Well, Amy Ehrman, thank you so much for being on the Make Meaning podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. And please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more at makemeaning.org or lynngalodner.com.